Psalm 78 is a masculine of Asaph. Now, Asaph was part of a group of people known as the sons of Korah. He wrote at least 12 of the Psalms because we know his name is called out in them, but probably many more than that, including sons of Korah Psalms. He was a skilled musician in his own right, contemporary of David, in fact, assigned to worship leading by David, and again, known as one of the sons of Korah. First Chronicles chapter 6 and later First Chronicles 15 and 16, the three primary worship leaders of this group are Haman, his brother Asaph, and their cousin, Etan. Of these three, Asaph's primary role was to oversee worship before the tabernacle, David's tabernacle, containing the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. That was his area of responsibility. Haman and Etan, they worked at other locations, but Asaph was right here in Jerusalem. What's more intriguing to me is that 1 Chronicles 25 tells us that David assigned Haman, Asaph, and Etan to oversee an elaborate organization of worship leaders, of singers, of musicians, 288 people, given a primary purpose. Check it out. You can read about it, 1 Chronicles 25, and it was to prophesy in song and worship. That was their responsibility. There is something of prophecy in the songs of praise. That's one of the easiest places, actually, for prophecy in the Scripture to come spilling off the page. So it should be no surprise that the Psalms are full of prophecy. They lend themselves to prophecy. Because song is already, lyrics are already emotive. They're already picturesque. They already tend to be types and images of other things, right? Songs that we hear on the radio will use uh, pictures, you know. He broke my heart. Well, well, if he really broke your heart, then you'd be dead. <laughs> Asaph is a songwriting prophet. So Psalm 78, a masculine of Asaph, a teaching, instructive, prophetic psalm. The fact that it's a masculine, and I've told you this before, anytime you see masculine, that word means understanding, it means wisdom, it means instruction or teaching. And when you see that, there's usually more than meets the eye to the psalm. So you really want to look closely at the psalm. What, what is it saying? What is he trying to get across? Well, let's, let's see. Psalm 78, beginning in verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. You can put it this way. These are dark sayings of old to enlighten us today. Dark sayings of old. So they have ancient ties. But the reason he says dark sayings, it's not dark like the dark side of the forest. It's dark as in... Things that mean more than we thought they meant. Dark sayings of old that are enlightening. And this is, by the way, the first of two obvious indicators of the Savior Jesus in this psalm. Because Jesus taught by parable. I will open my mouth, he says, in a parable. Turn in your Bibles over to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. First book of the New Testament, quite easy to find. Matthew 13, verse 10. Jesus had already just shared the parable of the sower with the people. 
And as he gathered with his disciples, it says in verse 10, that they came to him and they said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them and said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Hint, he's talking about faith. He's not talking about possessions. He's not talking about abilities. He's talking about faith. If you have faith more faith is going to be given to you. If you have little or no faith, even what you have is going to be taken away. And the parables require faith. In fact, parables extract faith. They pull out faith. They increase faith. And so he says this, he says in verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they've closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see. And to hear what you hear and did not hear. Why did Jesus speak in parables? He tells them to extract faith. To increase and to grow faith and to require faith of the listener. So the parable comes and if someone is already beginning to believe or believes in Jesus, they're going to get it. They're going to see the application. It's going to be like an open window. But if someone is sitting there with a hard heart, not wanting to hear from Jesus, not interested in what he has to say, the shade's already drawn, and they will not understand. And this was a masterful way that Jesus kind of divided out those who really did want to know God from those who wanted to know themselves, those who didn't want anything to do with God. So parables, and the parables of Jesus, they go below the surfacey. Below the superficial, and they bring fresh revelation to the open-hearted. To those who are willing to and hungry to receive. The word parable itself, I've told you before, it's parabole, so it's easy to remember. Parabole in the Greek, and it literally means to throw alongside. So the idea of a parable is, is to throw alongside something unknown, something known, or you take a known thing and you throw alongside something unknown so that the unknown becomes known. You tell a story, you give a concept that of a known thing, like Jesus would talk about, the sower and the soils. Well, everybody understood that there were different kinds of soil, and you sow the seed, that's a known thing. But he threw it out there alongside an unknown thing of the heart to make the unknown known. That's exactly what Asaph is doing in Psalm 78. It is a parable, it is a masculine, it is a parable, dark sayings to enlighten us today. By the way, Matthew goes on to quote from Psalm 78, verse 2, as directly fulfilled by Jesus. If you look further down in Matthew 13, at verse 34, he says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Asaph. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. So 
So Asaph wasn't just writing a song. He was prophetically revealing the teacher of parables himself, even as Asaph is writing a parable. So go back to Psalm 78 and let's follow this through. A parable, a dark saying of old. I'm going to utter these things. I'm sharing this. It's a masculine, so there's more than meets the eye. And verse 4 he says, We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. Now see, one might be tempted if you didn't think of this in terms of a parable, if you didn't realize it's a a masculine to offer an open-up understanding, you might be tempted to read Psalm 78 as it seems on the surface, which is what? A history lesson. Psalm 78 just reads as a history lesson. You can go 72 verses and it doesn't take long before you realize you're just getting Israelite history. You're getting a picture painted, a picture drawn from Jacob to David. That section of Israel's life and history is being painted in song. And you could look at it and say, oh, okay, don't know much about history, but that's what this is. It's a history lesson. But I remind you, and think of it this way, the entire psalm is parabolic. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he said this now... Beloved is the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles. Remember those things that were said. And as Les likes to say, a good teacher is a repeater. A good teacher is a repeater. A good teacher is a repeater. Or as Paul wrote, speaking of Israel, he said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Now these things, he says, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, happened to them, to Israel, as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So it ties in that right here, Psalm 78, history lesson of Israel. No, no, it's much more. And as we take the time to walk through it, it is a Savior psalm. We've already seen Jesus as the speaker of parables. I will open my mouth in a parable. Well, that is Jesus Christ. So we can know that the parable being given, yeah, it's written by Asaph, but guess what? This is a parable of Jesus. This is the Spirit of Christ speaking through Asaph the prophet to bring us this parable at the end of the age. Instructive Relevant to the follower of Jesus. So verse 5, he begins, he established a testimony, an edut, a witness. He established a witness in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Asaph says Israel is both. They are the witness of God's faithfulness and they are the example of human failure. They witnessed, they saw, they walked out the faithfulness of God as He will enlighten us with through the rest of the psalm. They witnessed it. They can give testimony of it. But in their lives and in their behavior, 
They walked out human failure. Witnesses of God, failures as people. And and please don't hear me being anti-Semitic. I love Israel. I love the people of Israel, even as God loves the people of Israel. But we've got to call it what it is. So they were witnesses of God, but they were failures in their own right, at least the generation that Asaph is referring to. And it's the difference between having confidence or just crumbling. Confidence in God because you witness Him and you follow that and you testify of that witness or crumbling in your own attempts. It's the difference between righteousness and rebellion. And every generation, which Asaph makes clear, every single generation has this choice. You can remember the faithfulness of God or you can rebel like the failure of man. And every generation, all the way from Jacob to David to tonight, every generation can make that choice. In fact, every generation must make it. That's why the Bible tells us that God visits every generation. It's one of the most encouraging, comforting things I think we can read in Scripture. It's Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, implication for thousands of generations. That's God. His loving kindness, His grace, His chesed in the Hebrew is available for countless generations. He keeps that for any and every generation who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet He will by no means leave unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Tragically, the father's iniquity is often passed along, picked up by the children. And what Moses is writing, what God is saying here, is he visits the iniquity. That is, he doesn't blame the child for the sin of the parent, but he comes to see if this generation is repeating the sins of the parent. Are you continuing in this? Are you following after the iniquity of father, of mother, of grandfather, of grandmother? Are you just carrying on the family line of rebellion against God? He comes to every generation to find out. Father's iniquity is often learned, it's often passed along to our children. But the Bible says it's the father's responsibility to pass along what he says in verse 4, the praises of the Lord, His strength, His wondrous works that He has done. So, our iniquity often as fathers is passed along. Our responsibility to teach the truth of God and to show His faithfulness. And also, even in our failures, to reveal to our children what sin is. To direct them in that. This was incorrect of me. This was wrong of me. This was unrighteous of me. Don't go down that road to try to train up in the way of the Lord. But get this, please understand, what the children do with that is completely up to them. So fathers of young children, do your best. Teach the Lord. And understand, ultimately, those children must make their own choice, whatever you teach. Fathers who look back and they think, wow, I blew it. My most sinful years was during the raising of my children. A bit bit of comfort for you. They still have to make their own choice. And you all know this to be true. There are kids who come out of absolute train wreck families and are glorious followers of Jesus Christ. And there are kids who come out of perfect, glorious, wonderful families and they end up a train wreck. And there's only one reason for it. The kids have a choice. 
They can choose what they're going to do. They have to decide to receive it. Literally, they got to decide if they're going to use the equipment that's been given to them. Like Ephraim. Verse 9. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows. So they're trained, they've got the equipment, yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law. They forgot His deeds and His miracles that He had shown them. Understand, Ephraim was mighty. One of the biggest, if not the biggest tribe in the tribes of Israel. So big that among the northern tribes, when talking about northern Israel and the northern kingdom of Israel, it was often and is often referred to in the Bible as Ephraim. So all the ten northern tribes are just kind of encompassed by that large name of Ephraim. And God says they're trained, they have their bows, they're equipped, but they turned back. They forgot His deeds, verse 11, and His miracles that He had shown them. So in the case of Ephraim, God is the teaching Father. You can't get a more perfect teaching Father than Father God. And yet the children still rebelled. Equipped by God in the wilderness, but the children rebelled. Trained by God, and the children rebelled. Ephraim. It's interesting, there's no biblical example. You can't find it of Ephraim ever turning away in the day of battle. You never see that cowardice that's described here by Asaph, that they turned back. Well, we don't see that anywhere in Scripture. As a matter of fact, what we see with Ephraim is the opposite. They were hot-headed. <laughs> this was a tribe that liked to fight. Call for war, they'll show up. They're going to be there. They're in the front lines. They're ready to go. So what's Asaph talking about here? Ultimately, prophetically, Ephraim did turn away from the Lord and they were wiped out by the Assyrians 300 years after Asaph wrote this psalm. It wasn't a matter of whether they were willing to go out and fight in the battle. It was where their hearts were, and their hearts were not equipped. They were equipped, but they were not prepared to fight. They wouldn't fire off the arrows they were given. Point is, you can be trained up as an archer, equipped with bows, but you decide whether to shoot the arrows or not. You decide if you're going to fire them off in the day of battle. By the way, arrows in the Scripture are interesting. We hear the word sword and often equate that quickly with the Word of God. The sword is the Word. Well, what about arrows? What about being equipped with bows and then turning back? What would the arrows be? And if you look through the Scriptures, arrows seem to indicate messengers sent to pierce the heart. Arrows often are referred to in the Scriptures as that which pierces into the inner man, the inner woman, piercing into the heart. And so to be an arrow of the Lord and to fire off arrows is to fire the message of God, the gospel, which it does pierce the heart. It does get through. Have you been equipped with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you don't put the arrow to the bow? But you're not firing the arrow into the lives of those around you. See, we're called to fire off these messages. In Isaiah 49, verse 1, it's the second servant song of Isaiah. It speaks of Messiah. It says, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother He named me. This is Jesus talking. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand He has concealed me, and He has also made me a select arrow. He's hidden me in His quiver. This is the arrow of Jesus, the arrow of the Gospel, ready to be fired. Will you fire it? In the day of battle? 
That's what the messenger does. Ephraim failed because they quailed. And they did not keep the covenant of God. So Asaph now launches into a history of Israel, verse 12. And he wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. You might want to note this Zoan is Tanis. Made famous by the Indiana Jones movie, the very first one. Tanis, where they said the Ark of the Covenant was... There's no historical evidence or truth of that at all. It's just Hollywood. But Tanis is in the northern Nile Delta of Egypt. So he says, he wrought wonders there. He divided the sea, verse 13, and caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. And then he led them with the cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. So verse 14 is speaking specifically of that Shekinah glory of God. Verse 15, he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. Speaking of his volume. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet, they still continued to sin against Him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? That's the same phrase, by the way, that David uses in Psalm 23 where he says, You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. That's the difference between faith and faithlessness. Faith says, even in the worst situation, even when I'm under attack, God's got a table spread for me to eat from. Faithlessness says, You give me nothing. You give me nothing that I ask for. I'm hungry. Is God able to prepare a table in the wilderness? And the implication in the heart of of the non-believers, no. No, he's left me out here to starve. Verse 20, Behold, he struck the rock, so the waters gushed out, and the streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Therefore the Lord heard, and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God, and did not trust in His salvation. Time and time again. Were any of you the kids who, who heard the stories of Israel in the wilderness and thought, perhaps out loud or perhaps just to yourself, if I was there, I would have believed Him. I would After the Red Sea, there's nothing I wouldn't have thought He couldn't do. And yet it was after the Red Sea that they whined and complained the most. It was after the miracles of the ten plagues. It was after the deliverance and the rescue and all that their eyes had seen that they still doubted, that they still murmured and grumbled against God. I would. I woke this morning to a frustrating first few hours. Well, I'm not going to give you all the particulars to it. It has to do with the adoption and, and the fact we got a phone call this morning and it was just frustrating. Brick wall kind of stuff. So that's the way our day started. I want to advise you, if you're lying in bed and your phone rings, don't answer it. Just don't answer it. Wait till you've had your shower, you've had your coffee or your tea, you're wide awake, then you can... Anyway, so I wasn't even out of bed before Cheryl and I were both just going, what does this mean now? And the day it was spent praying about this and trying to think it through, and I, I'm driving over to the church and just in a bad mood, you know. And I, Later this afternoon, God said, hey, have I not shown you I've got this? 
Have I not made clear? Do you need more from me to prove to you that this is my will and my purpose? And so I'm driving going, yes, Lord, I forgive me. You parted the Red Sea and I doubt it. I mean, I would do the same thing that Israel did. And so would you. When we're relying on our eyes rather than relying on faith and trusting in the Lord. I don't even know what verse I'm on. (laughs) His anger mounted because they didn't believe in Him. They didn't trust in His salvation. Verse 22. When God gives you something and you know it's from Him, trust Him in it. This has been Pastor Rick's lesson for the day. I've given you more than enough proof that I'm in this. Will you trust me? Yes, Lord, I will. Last thing I was driving over here tonight... And I was praying, okay, Lord, I, I'm, I'm sensing you got this. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> and I said, would you, Lord, would you bring a word of confirmation? I do this from time to time. I'm kind of a Gideon on this. Lord, forgive me, but I'm flipping the fleece. I, I want to see. Make it, make it do everywhere but on the fleece, Lord. And then the next day I go, okay, but can you make it just do on the fleece? And, that, and, that, and that's all I need. And so I'll say, would you give me confirmation? By the way, I don't think it's faithless to ask for confirmation. I think that's a good thing. Bring it through a brother or sister. And I've, I've already had it. I mean, we haven't even, before worship even began. I got two specific verses from the Scriptures. And the moment I heard them, it just rang in my heart. That's it. That's it. God is confirming. I've got this. They did not believe. They did not trust in His salvation. Yet, verse 23, He commanded the clouds above. He opened the doors of heaven. You know, He's the one who opens and no one shuts. Verse 24, He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food or literally grain because manna was really more like a soft, fine grain that they could make bread from. And So He gave them grain from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. Bread of angels, the word bread there, actually not bread, bread of angels. Angels there isn't what you would think. It's not malach. Malach is the Hebrew word for angels. The word that's translated angels is abarim. Literally, and note this, this is the bread of the mighty. The bread of the strong. So not only was manna sweet, it was also a superfood. And truly it was. That was all that they needed. The the nutrients, the strength, everything was in there. In that manna. And He feeds them the bread of the strong. And by the way, this is the second suggestion of Jesus in the psalm. That He gave them food in abundance, food from heaven, grain from heaven, manna for them to eat. Turning your Bibles over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, verse 10, He took the loaves and had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, He said to His disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. And they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. The prophet? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, God said through Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses. 
I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Speaking of this this great prophet, a Moses-like prophet who would show up. Ever since Moses gave that prophecy, the people of Israel were watching to see if this prophet would come. And no one had risen like Moses. Not, not exactly like Moses. I mean, Elijah was great. But, but a Moses-like prophet. Here comes Jesus, and he's the first person since Moses to feed a multitude with bread. Because Moses was the one who was leading when the manna came. And the people were freaking out. This is a Moses miracle. This is a Moses... Could he be the prophet? They all wanted to know. Skip down to verse 26. It's a little later on. Jesus had walked on water in between these verses, but that's another story for another time. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. Translation, you seek me because you're looking for a free lunch. That's all you want. You're looking for what you can get in the immediate... You just want something to eat. And he says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. Therefore they said to Him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, well, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? My, my answer to that would be all snarky. I'd be like, I'll tell you what, go pick your teeth and let's talk about the sign. You just got filled. Thousands of you filled to the gills, stuffed with bread. So what are you talking about? They're asking for a sign. This is what we do. This is not just what Israel does. This is what we do. The moment God has provided a miraculous sign, something amazing and faith-inspiring in our lives, the next day we're like, oh Lord, if you could just give me a sign, that'd be cool. (laughs) They say, our our fathers ate man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So they're saying, more bread, more bread. And Jesus says in verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread. Don't you get it? Still teaching in parables. See, he fed them, and that was a parable. The feeding of the 5,000 was a parable. To show them bread coming down from heaven through Jesus, he is the bread of heaven. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. The bread's never the thing. The provision is never the thing. The provider is the thing. He's the focus. Not what he's done for you or what he can do for you, but who he is. Which is what he's always calling us to in our lives. To trust who he is. But what happened after he fed them all? This amazing chapter in Jesus' life, this grand feeding, which could have been a turning point, a glorious turning point for Israel. This could have been the moment in all history where all Israel was saved. And what happened? They returned to desert rebellion. If you go further down in the chapter, skip all the way down to verse 56, and you can follow it through in your own time and watch what takes place, but 
Jesus says in verse 56, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And he's still talking parabolically. He's not saying, come take a bite of my left arm. Right? Eat my flesh, drink my blood, have me in you, he's saying. He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, verse 54. I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Take me in. I mean, it's so over the top. Still talking in parabolic terms, but he's so over the top, you've got to understand, he's talking about absolute intimacy and trust in me. They don't get it. He says in verse 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread, speaking again of himself, will live forever. And these words he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? (laughs) It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Why does he say that? Because they're thinking with the flesh. They are not listening with the Spirit. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. (laughs) But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And in John 6, 66, as a result of this, Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. This was after they had had this miraculous feeding. Bread come down from heaven in Jesus himself and all they wanted was just more bread. More miracles, more proof. Give us more. We want to see it with our eyes. We want to taste it with our tongues and touch it with our flesh. My, how history repeats itself. Because what they did with Jesus on that day is exactly what the Israelites did in the wilderness, if you go back to Psalm 78, verse 26. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by His power He directed the south wind. When He rained meat, literally there, note this, when He rained flesh upon them like dust. Even winged fowl like the sand of the seas. And then he let them fall in the midst of their camp and round about their dwellings. So what's this talking about? Alright, keep your finger there and go all the way left to Numbers. Numbers chapter 11. And in the history of Israel that Asaph is referring to, this is that moment where the children of Israel were like, we want the meats. We got the bread. Who's got the meats? And that's what they wanted and called for and cried for. Numbers 11, verse 18. God responds. Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord. I like the way he says that. You've wept in the ears. Not at the ears or near the ears. You've wept in my ears. I'm going to use that sometime with my kids. Stop weeping in my ears. 
You have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not, you shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? I love God's sense of humor. I'm going to give you meat until it's coming out of your noses. You want meat? You'll have meat. I, I read that verse and you know what comes to mind? When I was growing up, my mom would make pork chops, trying to feed us meat. And these things were like shingles on a house. <laughs> you couldn't get them any drier. You know. <laughs> and we would eat these things, and it's like you get a bite. And I'm going to have to delete this off the recording because I don't want my mom ever to hear this. But you take a bite and you chew and chew and chew and chew and chew and chew. And you're still chewing until all you're tasting is your own spit. But you're chewing and chewing and chewing until finally you pull the napkin up and you do one of these. And then, and then after you're all done, you'd have to go up to the bathroom and brush the meat out of your teeth. It was all, and that's what I think of when I read this. Quail coming out of the nose, meat until you're just sick and tired of meat. That's what I think of. Mom's pork chops. <laughs> no offense, Mom, but God is making a point. And in fact, you stay in Numbers 11, but listen to this. Back in Psalm 78, verse 30, it says, Before they had satisfied their desire, while their, mouth, while their food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. Numbers 11.33 says, While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague, so that the name of that place was called Kibrot Hata'ava, because they, where they, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. Kibrot Hata'ava literally means graves of greed. Graves of greed. That's what they called this landscape in the place where the quail came. They were so greedy. Psalm 106 verse 13 says they quickly forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So He gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. Go back to Psalm 78. And I want you to notice the greed issue. See if you caught it. Three times... As they're in the wilderness, and and Asaph is is singing the song, and he's recounting this history. Remember, it's more than history. But as he's recounting this, three times he uses this phrase back in verse 18, their desire. Verse 29, their desire. Verse 30, their desire. Their desire, their desire, their desire. That's the issue of greed. It's just desire. It's wanting and feeding on the desire for flesh. In this case, meat will waste a life. Feeding the flesh will waste a life. You all know this. But feeding on the bread of heaven not only saves a life eternally, but it strengthens. This is the superfood of God. Jesus Christ Verse 32, continuing in Psalm 78, in spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. 
So He brought their days to an end in futility or in vanity and their years in sudden terror. When He killed them, then they sought Him and returned and searched diligently for God and they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God their Redeemer. And this brings us some, some insight into the hard-hearted the harder the heart, the more heavy-handed the discipline needs to be. Just to stop the rebellion. And a hard-hearted child tends to need more discipline. A soft-hearted child you can just look at sideways and they just crumble, you know. But, but the hard-hearted, rebellious kid, it's like, you, just to stop the rebellion, you got to come close to killing them. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that's what God did. I mean, He literally took out some of these rebellious ones in the wilderness. In fact, Korah, Asa should remember that, his relative Korah was among those rebellious ones. And He took them out so that the rebellion would stop, put an end to the rebellion. And it was heavy, and it was difficult. And they cried out to God. After that, anytime God brought discipline and punishment, they would turn around and, Oh, God, the Almighty, our rock. And they would follow Him again. And that's how it is with the stubborn and the stiff neck. The only thing that stops that kind of rebellion is discipline, and oftentimes serious discipline. But we need to understand something here. While discipline can stop a behavior, it's not discipline that changes a heart. It's never discipline that changes a heart. You need discipline... And as a parental rule, discipline has to be part of the deal. But discipline isn't going to get into the heart of the child or the heart of the person. Discipline stops the behavior. So, what is it that changes a heart permanently? And this is part of the masculine, part of the understanding. What changes a heart? We're seeing the example. They're disciplined, so they turn back to God. But as we'll see in a moment, that doesn't change their hearts. What changes a heart? Romans 2, verse 4. Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It's kindness. It's grace. It's love. That's what changes a heart. All the discipline in the world will not change a heart of a person. Love will. Kindness does. Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's why the world's going to go into wrath, because it has a hard heart. But it's love, it's kindness that changes the heart. And Israel, for all of God's kindness, over and over and over, his wrath was kindled because they didn't believe back in verse 22. Yet He commanded the clouds above and He gave them manna. He provided for them. He showed them love and grace and compassion. And they were grumbling and they were whining and they were complaining. So He brings the quail. They're still whining and complaining with meat in their teeth. And so He takes out some of them, severe discipline. And now it all comes down that they, they finally turn around. They remember God was their rock. But verse 36... But they deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue. Note this, for their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. The behavior had stopped. They turned to God. They called him most high, but their hearts were unchanged. They were still in the place of rebellion. Now, he says, 
He says they deceived him. Understand this. God is not deceived. God is never deceived. What he's describing, what Asaph is getting at here, is they were self-deceived. They lied to him, but this is what we would call the self-deception of empty words. Oh, yes, God, you are our God. Stop hurting us. Stop the discipline. We, we follow you, God. And their hearts were still hard. A modern-day equivalent would be showing up at church on a Sunday morning and singing all the right songs. And, and you come in and actually by singing those songs, you feel a little bit better and you deceive yourself into thinking you've actually repented. You've actually turned to God. The truth is that not until a heart recognizes the kindness of God will true repentance come. Behavior may be stalled. You may be righted in your course for a short season, but true repentance comes of recognizing the kindness of God, recognizing His grace and His compassion. By the way, we had a conversation about repentance. I'm just going to add this in here. Repentance is not turning from sin alone. Repentance is turning to God. Do you realize that you can repent without even having sinned? You understand what I'm saying there? You can have not sinned at all and yet repent because repentance is turning to God. And sometimes, I repented today. I I shared this with staff. I repented today. I didn't sin by being frustrated. I didn't sin by being upset by the phone call that came in this morning. That, That wasn't sin. There was nothing wrong with having that emotional reaction. Trust me, it was legitimate. But I repented. That is... Turn to God. You see David do it throughout the Psalms. You see Asus do it. You see it. The psalmist oftentimes will just be crying out and just, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, and Lord, why am I? How long, oh Lord? And then, but I will praise you. And the point is, even when we're upset, even when we're frustrated, even when we're hurting, if we turn to God, that's repentance. Sweet repentance that brings times of refreshing, as Peter says in Acts 3.19. But they did not repent. They did not turn to the Lord. Read on, verse 38. But He, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity, literally atoned for their iniquity, and did not destroy them. And often He restrained His anger and did not arouse all His wrath. See, if God aroused all His wrath, we wouldn't be here. We'd be toast. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted or tested God and pained the Holy One of Israel. These are remarkable words used to describe God. Grieved and pained. These are very human emotions. Which doesn't surprise us because our human emotion comes from God. He's the one who gave it to us. But our choices, our decisions, our lifestyles actually can do this, can grieve and pain God. This is not a distant deity somewhere. This is God who is impacted and affected by your decisions and mine. By my choices, by my actions. By my rebellion, I rebel. It hurts. It's not that God's going, you've rebelled against me and therefore... It's... Not again. 
Oh. And it grieves God. Especially when those who have called themselves His people, those who follow Him, turn on Him, or ignore Him, or, or leave Him out, it grieves Him. It literally hurts the Father's heart. It's remarkable. Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't do it. Well, how do we grieve God? Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. He talks about things that are relational. Divided, broken, disrupted relationships. Man, that hurts God's heart. It grieves the Spirit when a, when a church divides. Oh, few things are more painful to God than division between brothers and sisters. And in the wilderness, they're clamoring, their anger, their frustration. Because note, what happened with Israel in the wilderness was they divided between those who wanted to follow the Lord and those who were clamoring and angry. Caused division. And it grieved Him and it, and it pained Him. Even our hearts toward one another. If negative can grieve or can pain God. Verse 42, Yet they did not remember His power the day when He redeemed them from the adversary. When He had performed His signs in Egypt and His marvels in the field of Zoan and turned their rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink. And He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave over their cattle also to the hailstones and their herds to bolts of lightning. He sent upon them His burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He set, he leveled a path for His anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their virility and the tents of Ham. And that's all that God did against Egypt. At least six of the ten plagues are listed out here, reviewed, because... The people so quickly forget. So Asaph is reviewing again all the things. The people saw him do these things in that massive, amazing deliverance. And they still forgot. Remembrance. Remembrance is the key to a steadfast heart. Look back at verse 42 one more time. They did not remember His power the day when He redeemed them from the adversary, which is Egypt. So again, in the, in the history. They didn't remember this. And that's the problem. Remembrance is key to a steadfast heart. But I want you to jot this down. If you write in your Bibles, you might want to write this in the margin. It says they did not remember His power the day when He redeemed them from the adversary. The word power there is key. It's Yod. Yod. So, so Yod in Hebrew is hand. Literally translated, they did not remember His hand the day when He redeemed them. The hand of redemption. The outstretched hand of God. Or we might think of it as the outstretched hand of God. The hand of redemption. And it's another allusion, I believe, to Jesus Christ right here. They didn't remember the hand of redemption. Well, do we 
Remember the hands of redemption. John 20, 27, Jesus said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. If the hands of redemption are forgotten, repentance will not last. This is what happens among Christians. This is what happens when someone repents and believes and gives their life to Jesus, but it doesn't last. They forget the hand of redemption. They don't remember. This is why, by the way, we keep taking communion over and over and over and over. You've heard me say many times, it's not so we could be religious. It's not for the rote exercise. It's that we remember the hands of redemption. Because by remembering the hands of redemption, it's the kindness of God then that leads us to repentance. And we turn to Him again and again and again. That kindness, those hands of redemption, the nailed scar hands, the crucifixion, the cross, comes up all the time in the teaching of God's Word because we need to remember, as we remember the act of kindness, as we remember the grace of God, our hearts turn to Him again. And we have a steadfast heart through that memory. Lasting repentance. Keeping my face turned toward Him. But verse 52 going on, But He led forth His own people, that is, out of Egypt like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like, like a flock. He led them safely so that they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. Asaph would say, remember that? So He brought them to His holy land, to this hill country. The hill country is literally mountain. He's talking about Mount Zion. He brought them to this mount, to Mount Zion, which his right hand had gained. He also drove out the nations before them and apportioned them for an inheritance by measurement and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High and did not keep His testimonies, but turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow. And that phrase, turned back... This is now the, the second time we've seen this, this word. Back in verse 9, it's the same phrase that's used of Ephraim. They turned back in the day of battle. This is how we know that this is parabolic, at least with Ephraim. They turned back in the day of battle. Turned back is not ran away. It's not fled. Turned back is they apostatized. It's apostasy. The, the word, yisogu, means backsliding. They backslid in the day of battle. When they needed to stand for God, they slid. And here, again in verse 57, they turned back. They apostatized. They backslid and acted treacherously like their fathers. Verse 58. For they provoked Him with their high places and aroused His jealousy with their graven images. When God heard, He was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel so that He abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent, which he had pitched among men. First place the tabernacle rested in the promised land was at Shiloh, where it rested for hundreds of years. And he gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversaries. Verse uh, 61 speaks specifically 
of the Philistines. The adversary there is the Philistines. So now we've moved all the way up to that time just before David. And you may recall the story. The story of Ichabod. You remember Ichabod? Not Ichabod Crane. The story of Ichabod in the Scriptures. The word kabod means glory. Ichabod means glory gone. As the story goes, Hophni and Phinehas, the bullheaded sons of Eli, the priest there at Shiloh, he was overseeing the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle. And these two idiot sons decided, let's take the Ark into battle. They go into the tabernacle, take the Ark out. Eli protests, but they take it anyway, and off they march to battle against the Philistines with the Ark. And you know the story, the Ark was captured. Taken to the temple of Dagon. And Hophni and Phinehas were killed. The wife of Phinehas learns that her husband was killed as she is in childbirth. And she dies. But just before she dies, and they know she's dying in childbirth, she is bleeding out, they bring the baby out, and in her last breath, she says, name him Ichabod. For Samuel 4.21, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because her father-in-law and her husband were dead. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. This last breath, she doesn't say, oh, my husband Phineas. She doesn't say, oh, his father Eli. First, see, when Eli found out the news, he fell over backwards and died, broke his neck. Because he was a big man. That's what the Bible says. So Eli's dead, Phineas and, and Hophni are dead. The ark is gone, and all Phineas's wife can say is Ichabod. Glory gone. Oh, the glory's gone. The ark has been taken. The glory has exited. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12. God recalls the incident. He says, But go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23. Do you remember Ezekiel's vision? He saw the glory of the Lord go up from the midst of the city and stand over the mountain which is east of the city, that is the Mount of Olives, before ultimately the glory of God departed Israel altogether. Glory gone. You know what's interesting to me? In the 38 years of wilderness wandering, the glory of God never once left the people. He was always there. All they had to do, even in their grousing and complaining, even in their discontent, they could look to the tabernacle at the center of the camp, and there was the Shekinah glory. He never departed. He never left. Through all of that rebellion. But it was a rebellion of discontent. Grousing and grumbling and complaining. But God remained through it all. Disciplining them, and then showing them kindness, and trying to draw them back. The sin was greedy discontentment. What was it that made God's glory ultimately leave Israel altogether? Idolatry. It was when idolatry had taken hold of the people. And the difference between the two, you can be frustrated, grumbling, discontent. God doesn't like it. He will discipline you in it. But the glory departs when the people are idolatrous. And in Israel's case, I guess in anybody's case, it's replacing God or it's adding to God. It's saying Jesus and. You need Jesus and religion. You need Jesus and your traditions. You need Jesus and Asherah. Jesus and Baal. 
God and your idols. Let's, let's bring it all in and kind of have a coexisting collective. And that causes the glory to depart. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, I have this against you, talking to Ephesus, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you. And what's he going to do? He says, I will remove the lampstand, the spirit. We could say the glory, glory gone. Where God is concerned, his glory is lost when we deny relationship with Him. When we would rather look to ourselves or look to someone else or look to another for relationship. Jesus gives this one warning against replacing or adding to God and it is, if you do so, the result is the departure of His glory. The departure of His Spirit. Well, verse 62, And He also delivered His people to the sword and was filled with wrath at His inheritance. Fire devoured his young men, and his virgins had no wedding songs. His priests fell by the sword, and his widows could not weep. Verse 65, then the Lord awoke as if from sleep, like a warrior overcome by wine. And I'm just going to point this out to you because it is poetical language. What Asaph literally says here, the Lord sobered up as if one coming out of drunkenness. Something changed. Something happened and the Lord was aroused and He drove His adversaries backwards, verse 66. So right at verse 65, something big changed. Note that. Verse 67, He also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah. And Mount Zion, which He loved. And He built His sanctuary like the heights That would be the temple in Jerusalem. Like the earth which he has founded forever. And he also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. Here's the thing. Just after the Ashdod tragedy, okay, that's, that's when the ark was taken to Ashdod. Just after the loss of the ark was captured and the glory was gone over to the Philistines, just after that, the next generation arose. And it was in that next generation that something happened in Israel with eternal repercussions. A shepherd was born in Bethlehem. David was born. And what's amazing in this last section, Asaph sings, man, Joseph was famous. Ephraim was the greatest tribe in terms of size and glory, but God chose Judah. And it wasn't the mountains of Samaria where all the large tribes had settled and and gathered that God loved. No, God loved Zion. Mount Zion He chose. Even, Even, by the way, when it was still at this time in the hands of the Jebusites, God said, there's my mountain. That's where I'm going to dwell. That's where my ark will go. And it wasn't a mighty king, Saul, who stood head and shoulders above the people. The people's choice for a king. It wasn't Saul. No, God had already chosen David. He chose Judah. He chose Zion. And He chose David to save Israel. This is a parable. A parable of what? What is 
Asaph getting at? What is he revealing here? He's revealing life by God's choice. God's choice. Romans 11.28 says, From the standpoint of God's choice, they, Israel, are beloved for the sake of their fathers. God's choice of... He chose Israel. And He chose Judah. And He chose David. And then He sent the son of David. This is all about God's choice. And Israel themselves, the story of Israel in Psalm 78 is the parable is the picture of a bigger thing. Remember Paul's words, things these happen to them as an example, written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The point of all of this is God's choice. Here's the parable. Here's the teaching. That it is, it is by God's will and purpose that we are redeemed. It is by God's will and purpose that we are saved. It's by God's will and purpose that anything good will happen in your life. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.9, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It's God's work, not mine, that gets me to the end of the day. It's His will. It's His purpose. And the bigger parable in all of this is the real shepherd of Bethlehem isn't David, it's the son of David. The Savior Jesus who came because God chose it to be. Because God desired it. Because He willed it. Salvation never comes by the choice, by the will, by the desire of a man or a woman or by what we can do. Whether we're in the wilderness or in the promised land, salvation comes because God wills it. It's His choice. And God chose to send the Savior, Jesus. John 6.28 Therefore they said to Him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. My day has been a parable. My whole day today. And I didn't know it. At the time it was taking place, Sorry, because every time I look at Connie, there's like a little speck right there. It's gone now. You look beautiful. No, no, it was me. Today was a parable for me, and I already told you a little bit about it. And again, I'm not going to get into all of it. But I am, I am really riding high on faith right now and on God's faithfulness because I've learned a few things today. Things that I've told you before that I'm just now figuring out. Starting the day with frustration and ending with faith. What a great day. And today has been a parable for me of faithfulness. And I'll put it to you this way, again, without getting into all the ins and outs of the adoption and the, and the difficulties and the challenges and all that. It's, it's part of the deal. But here's the parable for me. Christopher's going to be in my home because God wills it. And there's nothing I can do to stop that. Or, or to expand. I, I mean, I'll do my part, whatever it's asked me to do. Christopher is going to be adopted out of Ghana, not, not because we get the right lawyer in country to represent us, but because God wills it. He is the God of the open door. So I, I'm sharing this very personal thing with you all. I woke this morning to a, to a wall, to a, a big stopper in our moving forward and like I said, frustrating. And thinking it through and praying it through and then beginning to hear the Lord through the day, have I not 
shown you that I've got this? Have I not have I not made it clear enough? I could take another two hours and give you point by point, line by line, all the things that he has done in our lives over the last ten months, right, Cheryl? Have I not proven I'm in this? It's God's choice. He wills it. He'll do it. So what does that mean for you and me? It means we follow Him. It means we trust Him. It means we repent. And maybe tonight you need to repent. I'm not talking about repenting from sin. If you need to do that, please do. But maybe tonight you just need to turn to the Lord. Because you're trying to do things in your own strength. Because you're finding yourself doubting because you're looking at yourself. Man, when I look at myself, I always doubt. There's all kinds of doubts here. We need to repent. And so before you all, I repent tonight. I repent. I turn to you, Lord. I return to you again. Like I've had to do so many times. And we as a fellowship tonight... And don't, don't agree with that. If you agree with me, then just let the Lord know in your heart. But Lord, we repent of control over our lives. We repent of our will and purposes. We repent of our desires. We repent of the things that, that we think we have to accomplish. We repent and we just hand it back to You. We turn to You and we say, Holy Father, Lord Jesus, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your purposes be accomplished in us and through us and we thank You that You even deem it necessary to use us. But we repent of trying to control things in our lives. And we hand it back to You and we say, O Lord, God of Israel, by Your choice and by Your will, all things that are right will be done. Lord, I have such peace in that kind of repentance. I have such joy in turning back to You and knowing You've got this. And Lord, I know with my brothers and sisters tonight, there's anything that we could plug right into that. It doesn't have to be adoption. It doesn't have to be anything that I know. We all have those things in our lives we're trying to balance, we're trying to control, we're trying to take care of, we're trying to handle, and it's stressing us out, and it frustrates us, and it worries us, and so we repent. And we give you the glory and the praise and the honor ahead of time for the way you're going to walk our lives through that open door. Praises and glory and honor are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.